0: It's great to be with you in person on uh, the second week of Advent, uh, which we center on peace. I do want to just underline those announcements that that Andrea spoke to here. Um, each one of these events, as she talked about it, you probably noticed, they're, they're going to be a little bit different and distinct from one another. This week is going to be kind of relational. You're going to have the opportunity, even though it's going to be a Zoom of like, hopefully 100 people. Those kind of Zooms are really fun and energizing. I don't know if you've been in many of them, but you can be in this one on Wednesday. Uh, It's going to be, we're going to break it down and it's going to be relational as well through that breakout room format that that Zoom has and that all y'all are familiar with without a doubt. Um, And then our Christmas party is just going to be straight up fun. And then of course, our Christmas Eve service is going to be a service where we'll have bands come in and, and bringing you worship songs uh, through the Zoom, and uh, we'll, we'll have a text, and we'll talk about uh, Jesus and him coming. And, and I don't know if you've noticed here, we have the Advent candles. We've lit in two candles here, and it's on Christmas Eve that you wrap up. We have two more Sundays for those tall ones, and then you wrap up by lighting the candle in the middle, the, the, the Christ candle. So that's uh, on Christmas Eve. So, even though we are definitely uh, operating within uh, coronavirus and all of these uh, uh, restrictions and, and pullbacks a little bit, um, we're really still leaning into everything that God has for us, that Christ has for us, uh, hopefully experiencing his love and hopefully his community as much as possible. Um, so, so yeah, that's coming up this December. Thanks, Andrea, for just so beautifully letting us into that. And I'm so glad that Jared's going to be joining us for Christmas Eve. That's just so great, so great. Um, Well, if you have your Bible, go ahead and pull it out and open up to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew 2, that's where we're going to be. If you're at home with us, go ahead and pull your Bible out, open up to Matthew 2. We're so glad that you're tuning in as well. Thanks for being with us. We're we're working from Matthew chapter 2. That's the first book in your New Testament. Um, And if you weren't able to be with us and join us last week, uh, what we did was we kicked off the season of Advent Advent is this Latin word that uh, is fancy, but it really just means coming. And Advent is the season, the the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, where the church historically has always leaned into the coming of Christ, the coming of Jesus. And that's kind of twofold. Uh, It's his first coming, which last week we talked a little bit about how that kind of first coming has been stretched even to today, the first advent, has been stretched even for today, but then also what happens in this season is is we really lean into and look forward to that second coming of Christ, when when he will come in full, and all of these things that we talk about, um, peace, joy, and love, all these things that we talk about... In part, because we can only know about them in part, we're actually are going to be able to know about them in full and experience them in full upon Christ's second coming. And so, the season of Advent is about looking back at, at seeing when these things were inaugurated into the world through the person of Christ, and then looking ahead to when they'll be fully realized in our midst. What a glorious day that will be! And we've started this season by really just noting that the world is a darkened place. Um, it's it's that way because of sin and because of the consequences of sin, and the year of 2020 has really felt especially dark for a variety of reasons. I don't need to go down the list for you. But it's, it's really been a year that as we look in the rearview mirror, we can, we can really just use one word to describe it, um, loss. There's many words that we can use, but one word would be loss. Loss. Um, many of us have lost the things that bring us hope, that bring us peace, that's what we're talking about tonight, that bring us joy, and that bring us love. And, and, and what we've, we've said is we're going to entitle this, um, this Advent series, In the Midst, because what happened in the first Advent of Christ that is still happening today, it's been stretched out, is that Jesus Christ showed up in the midst of that same darkness. When we even wrap our heads around geopolitically what was happening in Israel back then, Spiritually, what we know is going on, but still goes on, is that Jesus was showing up in the midst of darkness to be that light, to be that life, to give his followers hope, peace, joy, and love. And, and we just know that um, throughout 2020, uh, 2020 has given us the opportunity to look back and, and, and perhaps ask the question and examine those things that we used to hope in, the things that used to bring us joy, peace, and love. And now that they've fallen by the wayside, it's given us the opportunity to ask, well, how, God, how could God show up in this? How, how could God show up in this loss? And, and so the second week of Advent is all about peace. And uh, if you've turned to Matthew 2, you already see it. Uh, you, we've turned over to the story, the historical account of the Magi. The Magi, or, or your Bibles might say the wise men. Uh, so let's just read that together, okay? It's in Matthew chapter two. Um, I'll join you there. You're already there. I'm lagging behind. Okay, Matthew chapter two. And we're gonna read the first 18 verses uh, because it's a great narrative. We're gonna, we're gonna read it together, okay? It goes like this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? For he, we saw his star at its rising. and We've come to worship him. Then King, when King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all of the chief priests and scribes, all the chief priests and the scribes of the people and asked them where this Christ would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way and there it was, the star they had seen as it, as it, at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. Falling to their knees, they worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. After they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you for Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under in keeping with the time that he had learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they are no more. This is the full event. I wanted to read it all the way through to verse 18 and not just stop halfway through not because I want to dampen your holiday spirits with a a story that ends in widespread infanticide, a, a truly, truly horrific event. What a violent text to talk about the peace of God, the peace of Christ, right? But buried within this passage is the substance of how we can find peace regardless of where we are, regardless of what circumstances are going on in and around us. We read all the way to the end, and we see there's great darkness in the land of Israel. But to talk about peace, Matthew recounts the travel of these mysterious figures, very mysterious figures. Now, your English translations, it's going to call them wise men, okay? Um, Some parts of church tradition have said they were kings. Uh, We have songs to, to this effect, but these are all substitutions for a Greek word here that makes us very, very uncomfortable. And that word for the wise men is this, magicians. Matthew calls them magicians. That's the Greek word that it is here. It's not wise men, it's, not king, it's magicians or magi. And he calls them this to help his original readers, the Jews, feel the scandal of it all. And I I hope that it feels a little bit scandalous to us as well, because this is what Matthew's trying to show to his reader. He's bringing our attention that some of the first people who are aware and that have been clued into the kingship of the coming king that's coming to the world, that this God king are some strange magicians from the east. Some strange magicians have obtained a special hint from God. That this king, this king of the Jews has entered the world. This king of the Jews, it's, uh, the, the way that Matthew writes that out in the Greek, the only other place that you see it is above Jesus on the cross. This is kind of a clumsy way that, that, that the, um, that the that Gentiles would refer to this king of the Jews that was supposed to come out of Israel. They don't even know exactly what they're talking about here. But these are the ones that are clued into and searching for the king, this Messiah that has entered into the Israelites, the people of God to pay their respects, and even more, worship him. And so what we find out right away in this Gospel of Matthew, he's doing this on purpose, is that outsiders have the inside track to God. Outsiders have the inside track to God, and this is kind of counterintuitive for us. And and so for all of you who are out there that are looking into Christianity uh, from the outside during this season, you know, the the Christmas season is often a time where where people are willing to look to Jesus again from the outside and say, you know what, maybe there is something here for me at the the end of our year. Maybe there is something here for me. Maybe I haven't really been to church in a long time, really know much about the Bible or how all this works together. The counterintuitive piece of Christianity is that God identifies with the outsider, which means that you are in the perfect place. Position to have a front row seat to witnessing the king of the universe, to engaging and encountering Jesus. You're not just an add-on. You're not just an afterthought. You are the very reason for which he came and invited to take a front row seat and witness it. The prince of peace the name above all names, the wonderful counselor, God with us is inviting you and tipping you off. If you're listening to this, if you're here or you're listening to this and you're an outsider, he has invited you and tipped you off just like he has these strange magicians from the east to come in and get a front row seat to who Jesus is. Matthew's showing us that oftentimes it's the ones closest to God, the religious people, the people who are already living in the promised land. It's, it's the religious people and those closest to God that aren't able to recognize and experience God showing up in their midst. They missed it. See, Matthew's book, it's the most Jewish of all the Gospels, uh, we'll, we'll often say because he's actually writing to Jews. He's writing to the religious Jews of his day, the ones that were waiting for a Messiah to come, and, and, a Messiah to come, and he's telling them, you missed it, you missed it, but it's not too late. Open your eyes and recognize that the Prince of Peace has, in fact, appeared in your midst. He wants his readers to see, the, to see these magi who got it, to take notes from them, to follow their lead on how to recognize Jesus who's shown up in the midst of darkness. That's what Matthew's doing here in this account of the magicians. And so let's look closer at these magicians, because if you're a skeptic like me, you probably have tons of answers. Um, I'm, I'm a skeptic, I've, I have a, a, a physics degree, so it just naturally makes me really skeptical of anything going on, which is like these magi. Uh, who are they? Where are they from? Uh, how did they actually gain this knowledge? Uh, why would they do this? What would, what would possess them to do this? And uh, I must admit, these are actually some of the most mysterious figures in the New Testament. They show up as quickly as they leave, and none of the other gospel writers even write about them, and so we're kind of left in the dark. <clears throat> so we have to start with just what this office was in the ancient world, what are magi. Uh, I really want to bring you in the, into this to really see and wrap your heads around just how other and outsider these magi were. Um, magi were historical uh, figures in the ancient east, think Persia, um, who they would actually, they would be the closest advisors to the kings. So in Medes, uh, this was very common that that would be modern-day Iran, um, Persia, modern-day Iraq. Uh, But their job descriptions and, and responsibilities were very interesting. They bordered on the occult practices, which is why Matthew calls them magi. You see, the kings of the east fancied themselves as kings, which, or uh, as the kings of the east fancied themselves as gods, which means that when they had a dream, that was of a special significance. It needed to be interpreted, and so these magicians would come alongside and interpret these dreams in order for the kings to be able to make actionable policy on them. And so these magicians, uh, they, they were dreamtellers, they actually practiced magic and kind of uh, witchcraft, um, they were kind of fortune tellers. They would try to look into the futures, and then, most importantly, for our purposes and for the story of this and, and for this uh, story, they were astrologers. That is, they looked to the stars and, and saw stuff happening up there and, and tried to interpret what that meant, uh, what that was causing down here. They are astrologers. And so, uh, just a disclaimer here on the front end. Uh, Matthew is not endorsing sorcery, sorcery magic, fortune-telling, uh, astrology, or anything like that. I'm not telling you, uh, hey, these are great ways to figure out how to find Jesus in darkness. No, I'm not saying anything like that. Um, I'm just, that's just what they did, and that's just what God used. And th- this is what we, we would call an example of God frustrating sin. Uh, sin enters the world, and the thing that God loves to do the most is frustrate sin. That is, sin is really intended to steal glory away from God. God frustrates sin to actually turn it back and give him glory. Um, the biggest example is Jesus on the cross. Okay, Jesus on the cross. We have God frustrating sin to bring him incredible glory. What, what the enemy meant for great evil, God turned into the greatest good. This is the frustration of sin, and it's the same way here with these people, these magicians but it's mysterious how in their practice of the occult still they discover the ultimate truth that through their tradition of witchcraft they discover the most beautiful revelation that there ever was that god had entered the world and they discover him showing up right under their very noses right under the very noses of the people who were waiting for him the people who were looking for it it's it's just incredible it's just really incredible now, how, how did God communicate this to them? Well, I suppose that um, it's not really supposed to matter. That's why Matthew doesn't share it with us. But like I said, if you're a skeptic like me, that's not a very satisfactory answer. Uh, so so here's, here's a guess that uh, I'm putting 75% confidence in, okay? Uh, 25%, it happened a different way and that's okay, okay? But I think this is a pretty cool um, assumption to take and I think it's kind of solid. Um. <laughs> the Old Testament speaks of a teenage boy, a boy who 600 years before Jesus was born in Judah, was pulled out of Judah by the Babylon invasion, taken out and pulled out to Persia, where all the way goes all the way back to Bab- Babylon, and there in Babylon, Babylon, he's educated and brought up in the ways of the Persians. And one night, the king of Babylon had a dream, and he told all of his magi, he says, tell me what my dream was and interpret it for me. All of the magi responded that, that this is an unprecedented move, that the king must tell them the dream before they interpret it. The king says, if you, but if you don't tell me my dream, I'm going to kill all of you. Oof. That, that, that's a rough place to be in as a job. I don't know if any of us have been in that position with our boss, that intense. You know, just do this impossible task or I'll kill you. This is what the, the Magi of Babylon are facing. This little boy over here is I'm not sure how old he is, maybe he's teenage at this point. He says, God knows all things. He can tell me the dream. And God does. And then he told the king and interpreted the, the dream for the king, too. The king was amazed. Absolutely amazed. It's unclear if he was one of the Magi before this, but afterwards, it says, the king makes him the chief prefect over all Magi in Babylon. His name was Daniel. Daniel will spend the rest of his life um, serving in this magician advisor to the king role. he, He serves in this role. He also tries to stay faithful to God, which means that he keeps on getting thrown into things, like a furnace at one point. Uh, a lion's den another time. But each time God delivers him and saves him out of it and, and Daniel grow, grows old in age and in his old age he continues to operate as this magi advisor to the king um, and, and he gets, interprets the king's dreams and receives visions from God on his own and he writes some of these down in the book of Daniel about what the future holds. It's really difficult to understand actually. <clears throat> but wouldn't it make sense that these magi are 600 years later are working from the breadcrumbs of Daniel. He he was the chief of the Magi in Persia writing about how God was interacting with history. Isn't it possible that he wrote down, hey, when you see this in the sky, king king of the Jews is gonna be born. It's just an option. It's just an option. Maybe it happened that way, maybe not. But at the end of the day, it's not absolutely necessary that we have a robust explanation as to how these magicians figured it out, because we've seen this happen once before in Scripture. We, we, we've seen God just show up to somebody, randomly it seems, living in the east, and tell them to go hundreds of miles by foot to Israel. Happened in one other person in the Bible. Can you think of him? They heard the word of God, they believed it, they had faith in it, it was credited to them as righteousness, and they gave up all their comfort, all their pleasures, all of their amenities, all of their coziness, all of their peace to go and follow it. That was a moon worshiper named Abram, later becomes Abraham. He's the first magi of sorts to make this trek in response to the word of God. You see, God showed up and spoke to, to Abram, and Abram reoriented his entire life. Does what they were worshiping beforehand make this impossible? Well, of course not. My good friend David of Anger said this. He says, I mean, how are you supposed to know that the moon isn't the best thing to worship unless God shows up and lets you know? <laughs> that David of Anger, he's got some great zingers. But Abram... Like these wise men, and and this is the king here, he gave up his present peace to strive for a future peace promised by God. Abraham, like these magi from the east, he he had it made. He he had a large family, although no descendants. He had a large family, tons of things, uh, lots of herds. He, He was really doing pretty well, but he gave up his present peace to strive for a future peace. <clears throat> because one day God showed up and spoke to him. That's all that changed to him. And told him to walk hundreds of miles to the land of Canaan. And the closest thing to a U haul back then was a donkey. You see what Matthew's showing us? That, that the people of God, throughout all of history, have foregone their present comforts, their present pleasures in the search of better, more lasting, more glorious future comforts, future pleasures. They've foregone and forsaken their future peace for the sake of seeking out a future peace. That's more lasting, more glorious. And that's what Advent's all about. It's just a sheer amount of distance that these magicians have covered That they came from, the length of their travel combined with the gifts that they present fit for a king. Like poor Joseph and Mary were probably like, whoa, we're living high on the hog now. (laughs) Like they're a poor couple getting these huge kingly gifts into their house. Like Abraham, these magi are acting on faith in God. And it tells us that having faith in God means foregoing present peace and comfort to search for that better future peace and comfort. And we're in Seattle, and so I know that many of us have sacrificed present comforts and pleasures, present luxuries, present conveniences, present satisfactions to be Christians. Perhaps you've even risked your own well-being and happiness because you're striving for that future peace that's to come in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, being a public Christian in this city that's not that easy of a task, but, but one that calls us to forsake, peace, to forsake peace with the world, its ideologies, and so many of us have done that. To, to, to which, that's the first thing I wanted you to hear, is that to, to, you must hear the voice of God showing up in your life through the account of Magi, through the account of, of Abraham, saying, through Daniel, well done, good and faithful servants. Keep going. Because the future reward of your future peace is great. You know, in, in, in this world um, that our experience tells us is in opposition of God, that the scriptures tell us are in opposition to God, we're actually not going to find true peace here. That's, that's the scrub. Um, and and uh, that's not a particularly hopeful thing to say um, in Advent. When we talk about peace, it is a looking forward to that second coming of Christ. And as we do that, Jesus' blessings of peace do trickle back to us now, but it does not guarantee that we get to experience that in full now. He put it like this um, in John chapter 16, I think we have a slide on it. He said this at the Last Supper after telling the disciples a long conversation. This is at the very end of the conversation before he prays for them, just about what living a life following him was going to look like. He says this at the very end. He says, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. And, and so I think a lot of us, the, the church needs this right now, this great reminder right now at a, at a time and in a place when it's so clear that being at peace with Jesus means to be at odds with just about everything else. We, we need to hear Jesus tell us, take heart, take heart. I've overcome the world. Be courageous, be courageous. I've overcome the world. Continue to press on. Continue to push past the, the, the vapid present comforts, the, the peace with the world. Continue to push past being presently accepted, being presently praised by people. Continue to, to pursue that, that future peace like these magicians. What do you think they would have said in Babylon to these guys who are like, we're going to go find the king of the Jews? They would have been like, you're crazy. That is so ridiculous. They laid aside their present peace and comfort, their acceptance by others with the world for a future peace in the kingdom of God. And it's so important that we continue to press into this as a people because the result is twofold. The first is Jesus uh, experienced the resurrection. That's the proof of it, meaning he found that future peace. It is promised and it's guaranteed, and the resurrection tells us it's coming but then he also enabled others to find it as well. You see, when we forsake our present comforts, our present popular reputation, I mean, there's so many synonyms that that we could drop in here. When we forsake all of that to look to the future peace, we not only find it, but we help others find it too. They observe, you seem to have found this peace for which I look but cannot find. And then we tell them how they can find it by sacrificing our present peace by walking hundreds of miles across the desert by giving Jesus a shot. And so all of this is present in, in Matthew's discussion to show us these magi and, and, and then he actually underlines all of, all of this by way of interaction with Herod and we're just going to talk about Herod here just talked about the Magi a lot. There's so many things in this story. I'd love to talk to you about stars and stuff. Astrophysics, like I said, is where I I come from, but hey, you know, that's gonna have to wait for another time. It's not the most important thing here. The real most important thing here is this interaction with Herod that takes place. Um, I'll start by bringing you up to speed with this um, figure Herod. If if you've been a student of the narrative of the New Testament, that's the gospel accounts and acts, you're going to see Herod pop up all the time, Um, and those all stem from this Herod. This Herod is Herod the Great, all the other Herods that we read about in the Bible are his descendants, his son's grandson, and then even a great-grandson tries to make Paul bribe him to get out of prison uh, in the book of Acts. Um, But this is Herod the Great, kind of the the head honcho, and whenever the Herods show up, you know that nothing good's going to happen. Uh, in the New Testament. Um, and Rome installed Herod the Great as this governor of sorts over a huge swath of, of um, Palestine, um, about 30 years prior to this account here that we're reading about. And, and we learn um, from this text that he was a pretty terrible guy. Here we have the, the mass infanticide of hundreds, if not thousands more um, children. But he he ruled a pretty tyrannical rule before that, history tells us. Um, He actually systematically murdered and and executed anyone who he felt threatened his rule at all. Um, History records several other events similar to this mass infanticide that that he perpetuated. Um, And history actually tells us that he actually went crazy right before his death. He had just such paranoia to such extreme event that he would only let his three sons and his wife get close to him before he died. and so while this would account for all of the the biblical data that we have on him as being a pretty bad guy, it's actually kind of a two-dimensional view of him as a person, because the the truth was that he was a political genius, Herod the Great. There's there's actually a a great secular work of history done on Herod the Great that really talks about his political genius and uncovers it in a really cool way, because how are you able to maintain power if you're such a tyrant, You must have done something for the people to keep them on your side. And what Herod did was he rebuilt the temple for the Jews. He rebuilt the temple for them. He gave them present peace like they had never had before. He rebuilt the temple for them. The most significant and important religious relic that they could have had, he rebuilt it for them. And it won over the Jewish elite, these chief priests, these scribes, and, and, and because Herod rebuilt this, this temple, they gave him free reign to do whatever he wanted to do. They didn't even cry foul when he does this awful thing to children. Now, like most statesmen of the time, uh, he had a lot of different wives, and whenever he would have a son, he would name him Herod, and it was his hope that that after he died, he's at the end of his rule here, he's been ruling for 30 30 years, he's actually gonna die here two years after this. It was his hope that after he died, his power would transfer to these sons, those three sons that he would like closest to him. They each got a chunk of it, actually. And and so um, the... the, (laughs) The chief priests and the scribes, they have history of Herod's terrible track record of wanting to eliminate anything that threatens him. But what do they do? There's this rumor circulating in Jerusalem that says the the king of the Jews is going to be born. He has been born. It comes up to Herod. He invites them into his chambers and and says, what have you heard? The the magic kind of tell them. They don't really know who this Herod is likely, but the chief priests and the scribes are there. He asks them, hey, where is your king that is going to be born? Where is he going to be born? They, with full knowledge that this guy is gonna follow up and try to kill that king, tell him. They tell him. Maybe they're duped by him doubling down on the same trope that he's always used. Oh, I want to go there and worship him myself. But they tell him. Here we have the first state actor pretending to worship Jesus, but really just seeking to eliminate him. Because he really knew that if Jesus was to be king, it would threaten his kingdom. So he pretends to want to worship Jesus Christ in order to get the populace on board. Get what he needs from the populace, the information about where Jesus is, and use that to eliminate Jesus from the world altogether. Now, Matthew saw this dynamic happen each time with each of these rulers in Palestine, these Herods that come in, this Pontius Pilate that comes in, much like we have 2,000 years of watching this happen over and over and over and over again. You see, history presents for us 2,000 years of statesmen and stateswomen building temples for the people of God and claiming to, be, uh, claiming to worship the one true God. But when and their policies come out, it's apparent that they want to eliminate Jesus Christ from the public realm altogether. What we discover is that they simply claim that God was a significant part of their platform in order to placate the people so that they could propagate their own kingdom. They choose their own kingdom every time. And, and so if there's a common he, theme in all of history, it's, it's, it's this. State actors claim to be motivated by the worship of God, but it's clear that they care about themselves more. And so when it really comes down to it, they push God and Christ further and further out. And this happens across the entire spectrum of the political arena here in America today. It's happened across the entire spectrum over history. That's what Matthew's pointing at here in this text. I mean, it's almost gotten to the point where we expect this from our statesmen and stateswomen, is it not? And and, and so, (laughs) uh, it's so sad. It's so sad, it really is. And, And so, the question really is, how are we to interact with the powers at B? Are we to seek to be at peace with them? That's the irony that Matthew wants us to see, that seeking to be at peace with the powers that be is going to be at odds with Jesus. <clears throat> now, it might be quite the gem to go from Herod to our modern-day democracy. I, I, I get that, and I perhaps would have responded perhaps the same way when I was a little bit younger. Um, but the more and more I see, the more and more it's everywhere and, and it's, it's large scale, it's on a society large level, but we can't leave it there. It would be easy to point our finger up there and stop there, but we actually have to examine ourselves because this is only true of most all of our leaders because this is a universal way the human heart is broken for all of us. And it can be true of us too. It happens in our own hearts as we work to grow our own kingdoms. You see, Jesus doesn't come into our world as the Prince of Peace and say, share with me your biggest dreams and aspirations. Let's make those come true. He actually says, I'm bringing my kingdom into this world. Now you can take all of those little kingdoms that you have in your life that are so important to you that you propagate so that you can prop yourself up, your relationships, career, social agenda, free time, anything. You can take all those little things and continue to tightly hold on to them or you can hand them over to me. And we can make something beautiful with them together. And and here's why it matters. Because creating and clenching our own kingdom endeavors, just like following other leaders and their kingdom endeavors, it comes at a cost. It, It costs us so, so, so much. It ends up costing us everything. Our individual pursuits of whatever kingdom we're trying to build for ourselves will compel us to kill and sacrifice everything else that we have going on in our life that's good in order to get it. If we want that incredible career, we'll sacrifice our family for it. And In order to get that friend group you always wanted, you're gonna have to spend lots of money on great clothes that'll make you look good, perhaps even lean into some drugs a little bit, just a little bit, just to show them how cool you are. And at the end of the day, even when we have triumphs, and those personal selfish pursuits, this is what's key, they still leave us wanting. It seems like they say, it's just, just out of reach still. But Jesus' kingdom is one of peace and rest who will stop in their hurried and, worried, or hurried and worried pursuits of other kingdoms. Jesus put it like this. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, Read, the kingdoms of this world are extracting the life out of you and I will give you rest. Peace. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. So to be sure there's still some sacrifice here for a kingdom, what's different? For I am gentle and lowly in heart. His ambitions are not for his own good. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden light. The, the fact is that the current kingdom yoke uh, that, that you're under, whether it be someone else's kingdom or your own kingdom or both, is, is a heavy burden to bear that we cannot bear. And, and so how do we experience peace again in life? By seeking to be at peace with the right person, with Christ. That's where peace comes from, by seeking to be at peace with the Prince of Peace, to give into his kingdom, to open up our hands and give him authority over all the parts of our life. And like I said, he just wants to do beautiful things with it, with you. Because here's what's tragic about this account before Herod's destruction of the families in Jerusalem. Here's what's really tragic about it the chief priests and scribes stay in Jerusalem. It's announced to them that the king of the Jews has showed up in their midst, but they stay in Jerusalem. They're more concerned with their present peace with with, with Herod than the future peace of the kingdom of Israel and their coming messianic hope that they've been looking for. So so this Advent, as we talk about peace, um, to, to those of you who have been pursuing this future peace, At a cost to the the present, take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. Be courageous. Keep going. Continue on. The resurrection tells you that you will find peace. The resurrection even tells you that, that when you do find peace, other people will notice and be eager to experience it themselves. And so it's my hope this season that that as we look towards the Prince of Peace, we we do recognize that this Prince of Peace and that peace is, is a very strange blessing to promise. So strange that Jesus follows it up with, you'll have peace with me, but in this world you'll have tribulation. So in this season, I don't want to give you a platitude of peace to make all of us feel better. I want to give us a solution to find the substance of this Prince of Peace. And it's found in these strange magi. So would we look to them and look to Abraham who, for the sake of a future peace, a future promise to be actualized in their midst, gave up on present peace with the world. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come to you as your people and and Lord, we we do ask that that you would show up in our midst and that you would bring us peace, that we might be able to experience wholeness and, and rest in you, God. And um, I just pray that you would come alongside each and every person uh, that's uh, tuning in online, is that here, that's here present, that you would uh, comfort us and console us and, and bring us this peace, God, that, that you spoke of. And when we don't experience, God, would, would we hear the, the voice of your, spirit, of your Spirit coming alongside of us and encouraging us to, to say, keep going, keep going. Peace is right around the corner. It's not far off. And would that future promised peace wash back into our present? And we pray this in the name of Jesus, who is our peace, and by your Spirit. Amen.